Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. If I have a book of the summer, sometimes it's so far out front, so shockingly prescient given this pandemic that I have to make it a book of the year after book. I've never done that before. I've never made a book of the year after a book of the summer. I did this with Rajan's book. Raghav Rajan is at Booth School Chicago. His public service is India, his exquisite The Fault Lines. But it is the third pillar, which is extraordinary. It is the single most prescient economic book I've ever seen. It's on community, whether it's community or whether it's corporations understanding that we need community. Dr. Rajan joins us this morning. Raghu, again, congratulations on leading the way uh, in this pandemic. You and Mario Draghi have just done a Group of 30 survey on what corporations need to do. What is the community our corporations need to find? Uh, well, uh, at this point, uh, really, our, our, our worry is that there's a lot of distress out there, and uh, especially corporate distress, of course, household distress also. But uh, uh, this report, which the G30 has prepared, is trying to say, well, as we come to terms with the pandemic, uh, how do we deal with the massive amounts of distress which is under the radar screen right now? especially for small and medium corporations, but in many emerging markets also for bigger firms. And uh, really the report is a wake up call that we should start preparing our tools now because they will be needed in big measure. They will need to be in big measure. And, and, and uh, uh, Lisa will talk about this, about the clearing of markets and the zombies that are out there. Do we have a financial system now that can incentivize corporations correctly? Or is, have we jury-rigged it with negative rates and the rest of it where they can't operate in a normal thought process? Well, I think we've, we've opened the floodgates of liquidity to anything that has even a, a faint pulse, right? Uh, and that's the effects of both the credit programs as well as the, the really low interest rates, uh, as well as uh, effectively uh, the massive amount of, uh, of purchases of uh, various forms of securities in the markets. So uh, at this point, it's hard to tell who really uh, deserves to stay afloat. Uh, you know, given that they have a viable business going forward, uh, who's struggling to stay, uh, has a viable business, and who simply doesn't have a viable business and we're just keeping them on life support. Uh, I think the quick and easy decision to supply uh, liquidity was important. Uh, there wasn't time to make, uh, you know, more detailed decisions. But uh, as time goes on, we will have to make these more uh, careful decisions because uh, society can simply not afford the amount of resources that are being poured into the system. So, Raghuram, what are some of the tools that you foresee policymakers using to determine which companies are truly viable and which are zombies that need to die? 
Well, the first is to recognize that policymakers aren't in the best place to make these decisions. They have to, uh, you know, uh, rely on the opinion of both markets and the private sector to get this started up again in a bigger way. So the question is, uh, one, of course, would be uh, to start using various private sector opportunities, uh, but but in a in a less aggressive way. So, for example, if you're offering guarantees. Uh, to small and medium enterprises, which a lot of European countries have done, um, can you scale back those guarantees and make them not on the basis of individual loans, but may, make it on pooled loan portfolios so that you give the lender some incentive to pick and choose? So that would be one example. There would be also a need for equity in many firms because we've sort of reached the limits of leverage. So can you, in a sense, find better ways of infusing equity? Again, through partnerships. We've had uh, partnerships after the global financial crisis, the public-private investment uh, um, uh, partnerships that we had in the U.S., for example. So can you co-invest along with the private sector? And which private sector partners do you choose? And how do you measure uh, performance there? Because it has to be very transparent. But you could use those vehicles as ways of infusing equity. But you might want to infuse equity only after you've uh, forced some debt restructuring. So can we find easier ways of debt restructuring, especially for small and medium enterprises? And do we change the bankruptcy laws. In a number of countries, the bankruptcy laws are focused on liquidating rather than restructuring restructuring and rehabilitating. We need a lot of out-of-court restructuring, but with the bankruptcy laws as a backstop in case that doesn't work, and those bankruptcy laws have to be a little more favorable to survival. These are all things we need to take care of now if we are to remove uh, the overhang of uh, of both zombie companies, but also excessive debt on surviving healthy companies. This all sounds really logical. It sounds method methodological. It sounds like it is thought out. And yet I am still struggling to see us move out of a regime where you give liquidity to quote you to everything that has a pulse and that we somehow avoid torpedoing markets that are relying on that liquidity going to everything that has a pulse. It is a question of timing, right? Uh, what you want, uh, I think, is to ensure there is light at the end of the tunnel. Light is sort of, uh, to mix metaphors, is, is flowing into the tunnel. And at that point, you start moving the regime slowly and gently towards uh, a, a system where this amount of support will be off the table. Now, uh, at this point, uh, as you know, we, we have a debate in Washington about whether the Fed should move abruptly uh, from supporting uh, a variety of these programs that they're already in. I would say that that decision should be made uh, by the Fed and a little more gently, of course, in, uh, in, uh, in discussion with Congress. But it makes sense to do it when the economy is back on track, largely, when the uncertainty is off the table, rather than when the uncertainty is building even further because the pandemic is expanding. Dr. Rajan, you have a chapter in the third pillar, the pressure to promise. Who do corporations owe a promise to? Obviously, their shareholders, obviously the equity interests of their executives, and we've seen these inequalities out there. Who do they, who do they owe a promise of a better society to? Well, one of the um, arguments I make in the book is society changes. It's not the same society, uh, you know, it was uh, in the in the late uh, 1980s and 1990s. And there is far more pressure from society today on corporations. And 
even if they're acting in the interests of their shoulder uh, of their shareholders there are some things they need to do uh, to keep uh, uh, attracting young people into the companies to do the right thing uh, by their employees and and uh, today there's a lot more pressure on them to ensure that the employees employees are appropriately skilled uh, for what is to come, to to invest in training uh, in a much bigger way than they used to in the 80s and the 90s. And uh, this is also <clears throat> something that uh, you know, is in the interest of society. It is also something that customers increasingly are paying attention to. They, they're trying to ask, what are your green policies? Uh, and if you work for a corporation that doesn't have reasonable green policies, then the employees themselves start mm -hmm. getting antsy. So what I'm uh, saying is that even if you're managing in the interests of your shareholders, which I think is is an important uh, focus for corporate uh, leaders, uh, it entails taking into <clears throat> account uh, both your community as well as your sh uh, workers, as well as key uh, suppliers. It's oh. not, uh, you know, you don't make a statement that we're going to treat everybody really well because that really means that you're treating nobody well, but you pick and choose the stakeholders that you're going to focus on mm -hmm. and you try and work towards them. Well, congratulations on this effort with a group of 30 and with Mario Draghi. Raghuram Rajan, uh, the former RBI governor of India and, of course, at the Booth School in Chicago. We could go on and on and we do not have the time. Julian Emanuel joining us now, BTIG Chief Equity and Derivative Strategist. Julian, let's just start with a line from your research, sir. U.S. stocks are more dependent than ever on two things that over the last decade have been less than reliable. My partisan fiscal support, one. Public inflows, two. You're a little bit cautious here, Julian. Look, we have run a long way. Um, and if I had told you a year ago uh, that we would be where we are now, given the economic backdrop, given the, the public health uh, crisis that is directly in front of us, uh, it would have been very difficult to believe. And uh, there's no denying it. You can sort of put it in terms of interest rates at zero, but we are at all-time high valuations. And to us, that's a, a sign that we want to be at least balanced in, in the near term. I look, Julian, at the balance and all that, and it also is about sector choice. And I don't mean sectors like cyclicals and that. I'm talking about broad, broad global analysis. What do you look at when you look at international, small, mid-cap, other true sectors that really can diversify away from what's worked this year? Well, 2020 is going to be, in our view, a watershed year, obviously, for a number of reasons. But what you've had is really 14 years of an investment paradigm, U.S. growth over everything else. And when we think about 2021, the only conclusion that we can come up with is that, you know, large cap, cap tech, FANG, is no longer the only game in town. And this push for diversification, because our expectation is that we're going to have global synchronized growth next year, is going to lead, uh, in our view, to outperformance in all the places that have been, you know, really shunned by investors for the most part, international equities, value, and again, uh, an area like small caps.
Julian, this is the tension right now. Everybody says that those areas that have been less loved will be the beneficiaries next year. And then an increasing number of people are coming on the show and saying it's gone a little hot recently and we're pricing in a little too much. So what exactly are we pricing in right now with respect to a recovery next year and with respect to some sort of financial stimulus from Washington, D.C.? Well, we're certainly pricing in that politicians are going to get a deal done by Christmas. Uh, if, if you don't have that, uh, that that is, you know, assumption number one coming into the new year that needs to be revised downward. And then, frankly, we're we're uh, pricing in uh, what President-elect Biden is talking about is that a deal that we get over the next week is going to be a down payment on a further deal. So there is a lot, you know, call it north of two trillion in, in aggregate uh, that we're thinking about uh, pricing in. Um, and in, in in that respect, once again. Even though the S&P 500 is relatively the most expensive uh, index out there, the fact that you've had the degree of catch-up that we've had in small caps, in value, uh, gives us you know, more pause to be more selective at this point because the market is not primed for any sort of negative news. I asked the question earlier this week what would actually lead to lower equity markets. And Julian, the individual I asked the question to struggled to answer it because I think many people struggle to answer that question through much of this year. We've come up with these neat little narratives to fit the price action on any given day over the last couple of months, Julian, and those narratives have swung from one extreme to another, particularly in and around the election. Can you walk me through what's happening in the options market, the degree to which you think that is driving equities and the equity market more broadly, and whether you think there is a fundamental story behind it? Uh, well, the fundamental story is that, again, 2020 is the year that a younger generation of investors who've been chronically underinvested in equities discovered stocks and more so discovered options and more so discovered options that expire in two weeks or less. Um, and the activity has been absolutely frenzied to think that the day before Thanksgiving, could be among the highest option volume days of the year is absolutely preposterous by anything that we as professional investors have seen for the last 20 plus years. And yet still, that's what you had because the public really is to a greater degree. And we would say really more to more so than at the peak in 2000 is, is the marginal price setter in the equity markets right now and the marginal price setter in the options markets right now. So we are very dependent on the continuation of public flows, uh, very much the way you saw uh, after election 2016. 2017 was really the only year in this cycle where you had consistent inflows. We do believe that's possible, but you're going to need it in order to keep stocks moving higher. You wonder how reopening changes that story. Julian, thank you so much for everything. Everything through 2020, just wonderful. Send our best to the family, won't you? Julian Emanuel there of BTIG, the chief equity and derivative strategist. Tom again is with Common Spirit Health. He's our executive vice president of Physician Enterprise. And what you need to know is this is the Catholic initiative across this nation. 190 plus hospitals lined up in the trenches of service on COVID. Tom, your hospital chain is absolutely unique. What have you learned? What is the distinctive feature Common Spirit in your hospitals has learned over the last tough months? 
Uh, well, we've had a lot of lessons learned. I think uh, during this distribution phase, uh, we certainly know that all our markets are different. We have to work across different state lines, different cities, but we partner locally. And then we try to coordinate nationally so that we can drive things like, for example, the purchasing of refrigerators was a national effort on our part, and then distribution of that at the local sites. So we've learned a lot about you know local distribution issues that I, I don't think any of us ever thought we would need to know. Dr. McGinn, one thing I'm unclear on is how much the federal government is orchestrating this entire affair. What's your sense of that? Well, it's definitely you know starting at the federal level, but really the hard work of distribution is occurring at the state and then the local level. So that's why you know we're in 21 states, we're 130 hospitals. So a lot of the effort that we have to go through is thinking at the city, state. Uh, and that level much more than at the federal level. Our engagement is in local communities. We're a large local community hospital serving some of the most underserved communities in all communities across the country. So a lot of the hard work is working at that local level. I guess uh, there's one a question, which is, should it be done this way? People were talking about, we've been planning for the vaccine for a while. Should we have had some sort of orchestrated way to get some of these uh, healthcare organizations funding to buy those refrigerators to get this distribution network in place, or should it be done on the local level? Well, I think that it's always going to be a mixed match because I think the local level understands better where the needs are and how to get things done. I do think some of the larger questions, such as uh, procurement, uh, it may have benefited a little bit more from a, a strategy nationally uh, so that there was an even distribution of some of these things. But I, I, I do think the certain issues around, you know, where the exact vaccine is going to go on the ground in a town, in a city, is a very local decision that would be very difficult at the federal level to do. Dr. McGinn, tell us about what you've learned in Los Angeles. That seems to be the focus on this Friday morning. With Dignity Health, you've got the California Hospital Medical Center. What have you learned about the scarcity of beds in the worst case, Los Angeles? So, you know, usually when you uh, look closely at these problems and you start thinking about it, we are able to stand up ICUs. We actually have the ventilators, we have the PPE, we have all those things. A lot of what we're struggling with is the staffing. And I know you've heard that probably across the country. So uh, at the end of the day, it's our frontline nurses, our respiratory techs, uh, you know, the intensivists, the hospitalists, those are the folks that we need more and more and more of, and they're becoming harder and harder to find. Is that a solution of just higher compensation? I mean, you, you've been doing this for years, including at Downstate Medical here in New York. What is the solution to short staffing? In all the industries we follow, you raise compensation and they show up. Is it that easy or is it a harder mission? Well, this is much more complicated than just uh, compensation, because remember, this was, you know, just suddenly thrown upon us. We, we have the equivalent of opening up several new ho COVID hospitals overnight. And, you know, that's, and it, and it was at a very specific area. It's in the med surge space and the intensive care space. Mm -hmm. And it's only in the last, you know, six, eight months that we've needed this rapid increase of staffing. Doctor, appreciate your time this morning. Thank you. Dr. Tom McGinn there, Common Spirit Health, Executive Vice President of Physician Enterprise. What we do on surveillance is try to do back-to-back -back conversations. We don't always succeed, but boy, has it been good recently. Benoit Carre and Noel Rabini were this a few days ago, and right now we do it. Raghun Rajans is going to join us here from Booth School on an incredibly important paper wrapped around his book, my book of the year, uh, a bit ago. 
But Peter Hooper joins right now. Both of these gentlemen with IMF experience. Uh, Dr. Hooper, of course, running research at uh, Deutsche Bank. Peter Hooper, how have you amended and changed your American labor and economic outlook off that horrific claims report we saw yesterday? Uh, well, Tom, you know, we, we've, we've been the below consensus in our forecast. We were yes. actually ex expecting to see some slowdown going into the end of the year, uh, given both the, the runoff in, in, in the fiscal support, uh, but more importantly, the acceleration of COVID. Um, so so that, that, that weakness did not come as a real big surprise to us. Uh, <clears throat> in fact, uh, our forecast has been enough below consensus that, that the, the positive news on housing uh, and on, on uh, uh, business orders, uh, uh, shipments of uh, capital goods, uh, enough to maybe, maybe cause us to mark things up a little bit. Uh, but no question, things looking uh, really weak, uh, both for the labor market uh, and for consumer spending near term. I mean, the retail sales numbers we got uh, uh, both for October and, uh, and uh, the, the sizable drop in November. Right. Uh, a, a disappointment overall, but uh, about in line with what we were expecting. Tell me about the ambiguities of the inflation call. It's one thing for an academic like Rajan out of Chicago to pontificate about it. You guys are in the trenches actually guesstimating price change. How have you shifted that call? Uh, we've, we've been uh, expecting to see uh, inflation rise at a very low pace. I mean, there, there is increasing concern in the markets about the possibility of a surge next year as as pent-up demand really drives consumer spending back up. I mean, a lot of uh, upper-income households have been sitting on their spending. Savings have gone way up. There's a, a lot of wherewithal there. Um, but the, the way we put the numbers together, you're talking about something like 10% of consumer spending that could take a, a big jump. And, and yes, you might get a jump in prices in some areas. And, and Jay Powell actually talked about this this weekend at the press conference. But that's not going to touch off a big increase in inflation. Rental inflation is low and likely to remain remain low. Uh, even healthcare inflation has, is is likely to be a drag as as insurance uh, insurance rates come down. Uh, so overall, uh, we're anticipating a slow slog uh, getting getting core PCE inflation up from the 1.6 range currently to uh, uh, in, in to something still below two percent as we look a couple of years out. How much would your economic forecast for inflation change if uh, the Democrats take the Georgia race, get leadership in the Senate, and they pass some sort of trillion-dollar-plus infrastructure plan package? Well, Lisa, that, that certainly that's a plus. It, it's a plus for growth, but it's not a huge change. I mean, uh, uh, Georgia does make an a very important difference in a number of respects, but it isn't going to mean a huge shift in fiscal policy. Uh, if the Democrats take Georgia, it's basically the, the center of the party, the, the, the centrist, uh, or even the, the more conservative wing of the party that, that uh, really controls things. Uh, Joe Manchin will be uh, in very much in a driver's seat there. So you're not going to see a huge increase. You're not going to see a, a $2 trillion package passed. You're not going to see the, uh, the, the, the Senate get rid of uh, filibuster and, and, uh, and, and allow uh, many of the many of the things that could otherwise have caused the economy to get back to and above uh, pre-virus trends uh, relatively quickly and begin to get inflation up much more much more rapidly. So, yes, it's a plus, but it's not a it's not a really big one.
This is actually really important and, and some slightly out of consensus, Peter. Other people coming on and saying that they expect uh, that to sort of be gravy and adding into their economic forecasts. How much do you think expectations for a significant additional follow-on fiscal support package or stimulus, how much is that factoring into outlooks that you think are too optimistic? Um, I think it, there is a factor there. Uh, and as the Georgia race has uh, drawn closer, certainly that that, that is contributing, but um, I, I think I think at this point, uh, and even more, the more important factor is how quickly the, the economy gets back to normal with with the vaccines, and uh, you know, economic forecasters uh, rarely have the event like this uh, with with the tunnel otherwise looking so dark in the near term, but uh, the light shining this brightly. I mean, it's uh, uh, the prospects for getting back to something more like normal economic activity by the second half of, uh, of next year uh, certainly is, is, I think, what's driving uh, the, the real, uh, the, the real uh, excitement in the markets at this point. Peter, stick with us. I just want to bring some headlines from an interview that we did with a Bank of England official in the last one hour or so. Dr Vlieger saying the following, that negative rates could help the UK complete the recovery not a conversation that he's been shy about weighing into. He says any rate cut must be more than 10 basis points to work. Of course, bank rate at the Bank of England right now is about 10 basis points. And this was the move on gilt yields at the front end. The whole curve is sinking, but your two-year yield now is now negative 10 basis points in the UK, down five basis points on the session. Tom, what's interesting about this right now, it's not just that they are looking at possibly doing this. It's this theory that negative interest rates can, one, be helpful, and two, picking a spot in the recovery where they think it can be more helpful. It's something I've heard from the Bank well, of England a couple of times now, that maybe that negative rates help you coming out of the downturn to complete the recovery, as opposed to using them right. up front all at once at the very start. It's just like sports, John. It's just like when the Tots lose to Liverpool, you make your luck and have Peter Hooper of Deutsche Bank with us as you bring this up, John. It's really, really important. Dr. Hooper and David Fulkert's Landau have been way, way out front on thinking about what John mentions, which is the timing of negative rate policy and also this strange economic word, the magnitude of economic policy. There's an assumption, Dr. Hooper, that negative rates really don't clear systems and improve economies unless you get enough oomph, that you get enough magnitude of negative interest rates. Have we been too shy and too reticent about using that tool where we're doing an itty-bitty here and there? Well, Tom, I, th I think we're at the point with monetary policy where we're beginning to, to push on a string here. Uh, I mean, uh, yes, in principle, getting rates ever lower does, does, uh, does have some stimulative impact, but it also has some significant costs. Uh, and uh, maybe less so in the UK, but uh, in the US, the Fed is not looking at the, they're not going to go anywhere near this. They're really concerned about what the impact would be on uh, on uh, the, the money markets, on the financial sector more broadly. Uh, so I, I think, the, you know, households looking at uh, a negative return potentially on, on deposits as banks begin eventually to pass them yeah. through. Uh, a, number of, a number of countries have, have really uh, have decided this is not the way to go, and some have reversed course. Well, I'm not sure this housing market in the UK right now needs more juice. I don't think the United States does either. Peter, thank you. Appreciate your time, sir. Peter Hooper at Deutsche Bank. Thank you very much.
Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.